Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. At a certain point, you have to own up to the fact that human beings are imperfect. And sometimes the very thing that makes us bad at detecting deception is the thing that makes us good at everything else. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today needs very little introduction. He's been on the show before. Malcolm Gladwell, the uh, author of the new book, Talking to Strangers, which is the second Talking to Strangers author we've had on the podcast just in a little bit. I think we're doing them both in a week. So I think these actually interviews play off each other in an interesting way. So it's Talking to Strangers week here at the Ezra Klein Show and, of course, host of the Revisionist podcast. Uh, we talk about things that are random and we talk about things here that are very uh, deep and specific. But he's a fascinating guy with a very fascinating thought process. So I think you all enjoy it. Uh, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let's begin with your rules for life. Um your overriding rule in life is pull the goalie. What does that mean? Is, well, it, well, I did a podcast once. In a, you know, I did a, a podcast once. In a, in a high <laughs> state of – podcast episode once in a high state of whimsy in which I was exploring the notion of when all is lost, then extreme measures are called for. When all seems lost, extreme measures are called for. And it was based on this – um, hilarious study in SSRN about how, what, how, how deep into a hockey, or how soon should you pull your goalie in a hockey game if you're down by one or two goals? And the answer is way sooner than hockey coaches do. They typically pull the goalie with a minute left. And if you're down a goal, you should actually do it with five minutes left, these guys calculated. And I just thought this as a general principle of life was enormously interesting. And I, you know, I wondered whether it applied to me. Does, does it apply to me? I think it just applies to all well, of us. What is the general principle of life? Well, the general principle would be that low probability events require extreme responses. If your chances of winning a hockey game are 2%, then you can justify doing incredibly radical things to win, right? Because you're, you're just not going to win otherwise. So, you know, you could say, I suppose, as, as the probability of devastating consequences of climate change grow greater and greater and greater, the number of extreme ideas we should be considering ought to grow commensurately. I so that's a this is a kind of a risk management Yeah, it's a idea. simple, it's a simple, or in football, once you're behind by two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, you should never be punting on fourth down, like ever. Or you should be, you know, doing trick plays. You should do anything to disrupt the um, the rhythm of the game because the rhythm of the game is not going your way. Have you ever applied this in your life? Well, I, you know, I had this, I've had this sort of a, absurdly uncomplicated life. So, um, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> so it's one of the rules for life, but not but not yours specifically. No, it is a general principle <laughs> that I feel we should live by. Does it apply to me? Probably not. I mean, I'm, you know, I always say I'm a product of 
middle-class Southern Ontario in the 1970s. The single most idyllic, boring, disaster-free environment a human being can grow up in. Yeah, not too many dramas made about 1970s Ontario. You literally could not find a calmer place on earth in the 1970s. Like, there's just nothing, you know, zero crime, zero social disruption, zero anything, except like happy families going to public schools. (laughs) So a lot of your work uh, draws lessons and draws story and research out of sports. Mm -hmm. I have tried my whole life to get into watching any sport, Mm -hmm. like for any reason. And I cannot, like, I cannot get past this is boring and it is too long and I don't know why I'm supposed to care. What am I, what am I missing? Well, you might be placing too much emphasis on watching the sport and not enough emphasis on learning and reading about the sport. So I don't actually, I don't watch a lot of basketball. I watch basically playoff basketball, but I read enormous amounts about basketball. I actually follow it through my reading Oh, Not through my watching. Um, similarly, I mean, I watch the sport I really care about is track. There aren't a lot of track meets. I rarely go to one. They're hard to go to. They're real, you know, good ones are all in Europe. I maybe watch two meets or Porsche, a couple of races a year on, you know, obscure websites. Mostly what I do is I read about track, right? And that's how you, that's how you follow. Same thing, football I tend to watch and not read about. But in the main... The things, there are very few, only golf, golf is the only sport that I never read about and will happily watch a golf major. And what are you attached to? You're attached to, in your reading, you're attached to teams, outcomes, just great literary narratives about sport? I mean, no, what is your, what is the nature of your connection? Basketball is about statistics. It's about that each player can be represented statistically in a number of different ways and narratives arise out of that statistical representation and great debates happen and... And then basketball is an infinitely complicated kind of mixture. Particularly the contemporary NBA, what's interesting about it is almost entirely what off the court. It's like player movements, trades, you know, endless kind of dramas. And I mean, it's reality TV. It's not just a sport anymore. So are you ecumenical and like which teams you're reading about, where you're reading from? Like you Pretty don't- Pretty much follow it all. You I don't w- care. I listen to, you know- I really only listen devotedly to podcasts about sports. I don't really, I, I sample other things, but the ones I listen to every week are, I mean, it's like Bill Simmons. I've heard you say very nice things about the weeds. I listen, to, I do listen to the weeds, <laughs> but you know, the not as, Simmons is like three podcasts a week. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you could live with Simmons. You can live with Simmons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's it. So when did that start for you? Did, you? did that come out of? Because the thing that I am fascinated by in sports, and this is going to come up in, in a book I'm writing, um, is how to build a connection to something where the stakes don't seem high to me. Wait, what is what is your, your book's been very mysterious. I know. What's it about? Sports, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> are, you in a, are you in a position to talk about it? Yeah. Um, uh, book's about polarization, but there's because it's about polarization around identity, there's a chapter about sports because mm. sports are a very clear example of the way in which people can construct identity mm-hmm. out of what is objectively a low stakes form of material. Yeah. Um, the ups and downs of a team composed of players who are only there because they're being paid the most money to be there. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking for proof that we can form identities out of things that are 
quite weak when viewed from an outside perspective, right? They don't, they're not mm. our race, they're not our nationality, they're mm. not something that has uh, some kind of deep objective uh, relationship to the way we move through the world. Sports and the incredible passions they can unleash and their incredible prevalence, as far as we know, in every culture around the world mm. are just like an amazing laboratory case for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are, I mean, it's interesting. So there are a number of different varieties of sports attachments. I s suspect what you're focused on are tribal attachments mm -hmm. to sports, um, which interesting enough is not the kind. I used to be a tribal sports person. I used to live and die with the Toronto Blue Jays. And then they went through a stretch where they would be the best team in the AL East, and then they would lose tragically to, you know, on the final days of the season. This happened repeatedly, and it, I, it proved so painful I couldn't go on. So in other words, the tribal thing, I tried the tribal thing, and I, for whatever it is, I am not constructed to engage in tribal sports because I can't handle the, the emotional fallout from disappointment. That and seems rational to me. Yeah, though I, I like I why miss expose it. yourself to that? I miss fallout. it though. I mean, I really regret. I wish I had a consuming sports identity, and now I don't. Now I'm in basketball. I am almost indifferent to. I fall. You know, I'll watch any game. I don't have any strong feelings. I don't. I don't live or die when. Uh, one team loses or another team wins. It's just, it's all, I'm interested. I'm sort of interested in the outcome, but not emotionally engaged anymore because I can't, I can't handle it. And so when you follow it, then you're following it as a kind of tableau on which other lessons of life play out? No, I'm just, I, I love the game aesthetically. So another form of attachment to sports is the closed universe principle, right? Which is the, it's a very childish response. Kids, like worlds where that like knowable worlds, right? That are finite that they can master and that that can give them some feeling of control over their lives. You know, there are you read all the Harry Potter books and you have world mastery. There's there's a you know, there's X number of them. So I have a very childish, I have a world mastery um approach to sports. I feel I can discuss, you know, men's middle distance running with anyone. I mean, you, there are people who have, you know, more fine and great knowledge, but I can't be lost in that conversation because I have I have essential mastery of the world of, of elite men's middle class, middle distance running. That is, um, I don't cheer for any one runner, but I like the feeling that I, I can look at any race on that level and know what's going on. And that's really my the way I think about all sports, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about tribal attachments, which are way more interesting. <laughs> I like to think so. Um, or at least I'm hoping other people will think so when they see yeah. my book on shelves. What is generous orthodoxy? Generous orthodoxy, that comes from a podcast episode I did in my first season of Revisionist History. And I was trying to get at a subject which really has always really, really interested me, which is what is the right way to dissent? Because um, it strikes me there's clearly a wrong way and a right way. It's not clear. So I, ever since I read Albert O. Hirschman's Exit Voice and Loyalty, um, that book is about as important a book as I've ever read in terms of, um, I mean, the sheer kind of elegance of his paradigm. But he was- For those not familiar with Exit Voice and Loyalty, because it's so quick to explain, you want to give a yeah, capsule? Yeah. Um, so it's written by a man named Albert O. Hirschman, who was Einstein's cousin, crucially, and who grows up in- privileged German-Jewish Berlin and has the most extraordinary life of like any intellectual. He like 
fights in the resistance. He rescues other Jews in and out of Spain. I mean, he just like insane life. And he um, becomes an, uh, he's an economist, but he's not a quantitative economist. He's a kind of philosopher economist. And he writes a series of insanely elegant books, one of which is called Exopoisonante, which is basically saying that there are three or really two, he's interested in two responses to unhappiness with a particular system. One is exit, you leave, and one is loyalty. You stay and you raise your, I'm sorry, I'm running some voice. You stay and you speak up. And one of the things he's interested in that book is that economists have an inherent bias towards exit. They think that's what the market is. That, And he's like, actually, there are lots of markets that are better served by voice, where you stay put and you try and make the system you're a part of better. And then loyalty is where you keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. um, but that sort of has always fascinated me. So what's the, so the generous orthodoxy was a, and a, and a podcast episode about a Mennonite minister in his 90s who had a gay son and at the age of 90, what have you, presided over the marriage of his gay son um, and in so doing violated the precepts of his particular branch of the Mennonite church. And he did this in full knowledge of the fact that he was doing it. He informed his church that he was doing it. As a result, they didn't excommunicate him. They stripped him of his um, pastoral um, uh, responsibilities. And he accepted this decision by the church incredibly graciously. And he then wrote a famous letter where he both affirmed his devotion and loyalty to his church, accepted their judgment of his violation of their norms, and begged to differ with the direction they were taking. And it was so gorgeous. And in the in the theological universe, this his approach is has been called generous orthodoxy, which means that orthodox is where you are loyal, and generous is where you're willing to accept and entertain opposing viewpoints. And the combination of the two is the sweet spot. Can I be generous even as I am I'm remaining true to my institution? There's a, a, a funny principle in here, which you you do see sometimes about can you betray an organization, an institution, a set of laws or norms, and instead of demanding it adapt to you, just accept that you've gone against it and accept the judgment, right? You actually see this relatively rarely. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There are like, very few people, you'll see it in civil disobedience, right? Yeah. Nonviolent um, uh, protest. But in general, there's a kind of feeling that if I'm right, then that has to be recognized. Yeah. Um, it's very rare to see somebody just say, like, I'm doing this and like, this is going to be the way that the judgment comes down on me. Mm -hmm. And it's both right for me to do this and reasonable for me to abide by the rules of the game as I understood them. Mm -hmm. And like, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this is why the notion is so appealing because it does seem out of step with the moment. But there is something lovely about the level of self-sacrifice that's involved in that form of dissent. So one of the reasons I brought up these two... Uh, I know I had a somewhat long digression on sports, but the question of pulling the goalie and and, and uh, generous orthodoxy is I'm curious how you develop the structure for your stories. Your stories tend to combine a um, like a story and then kind of a big conceptual frame. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that in this particular one, the two might have been a little bit more connected, but like in the new book, there's Sandra Bland as the overarching story. What comes first for you? Is it Does it tend to be the tale you're investigating or the um, 
framework that you want to yeah. come across. Like, how do you structure your investigations? Well, it's changed. It began, I think, way back when I would start with the idea. So when I wrote Tipping Point, I literally was in the library one day and read a paper in the American Journal of Sociology about the idea of using epidemiological theory to understand um, social processes. You know, so it begins with a the theory, and I think, oh, let's think about how that applies to, and then I just came up with examples. These days, I tend to do it the opposite way. I think as a function of, you know, my doing the podcast for four years, original history for four years now, has just completely altered the way I do journalism. Um, I'm sort of become unrecognizable <laughs> to myself, maybe not to the, to the world, but, and that that's, that is all about story. You find the story, and more than that, you find the tape then you find a story within the tape, and then you think about, well, I want people to listen to this person, and now I need to give them a reason why. Like I, there was a podcast episode. There, sometimes it doesn't quite work. Like there was an episode last year, um, last season, about the differences between Israeli chutzpah and American chutzpah. And that's really all of that was because of two things. I went to LA and I met this movie producer called Al Ruddy, who's in his 90s. He was the producer of The Godfather and Hogan's Heroes, among other things. And he was just hilarious. And I had three hours of tape of him telling war stories from essentially the 70s. 60s, How did that meeting 70s. come about? I was interested in, for some reason, I was there was a case, This all this fell away, but there was a case in Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. One of the school trustees was forced to resign because someone had discovered that at a costume party when he was at Gettysburg in the 1970s, he had dressed up as Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes. Now, for those who are too young to remember Hogan's Heroes, it was a sitcom in the late 60s that was set in a German prison of war camp. And the- It's a very strange show to describe. It's almost impossible to describe. <laughs> like, if you describe Hogan's Heroes to people, they will not believe this was a show. No, it, 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 it doesn't make any, it has no, it could, have, could never work in a million years today. But literally the star of the show were the two German officers, Colonel uh, Schultz and, you know, Colonel Klink and Sergeant Schultz. And Sergeant Schultz, in the, the genius of this show is that uh, Sergeant Schultz was an idiot and he went around saying things like, I know nothing, I see nothing, which as a kind of allegory for a German, as a kind of joke, not joke, but a kind of, you know, essential truth of a German soldier in the Second World War. Um, so originally I wanted to talk about, so this was a show that was, um, that was written and conceived by two Jewish guys. All of the principal actors, including the German, the Nazis were Jews, and it was greenlit by the Jewish head of uh, ABC, CBS rather. Everyone was Jewish and they were doing a comedy set in a German prisoner of war camp. So like, I just thought this was fantastic. And I originally thought, oh, what the interesting thing here is, it's a story about the Holocaust and how the kind of fascinating fact about the Holocaust is that no one talked about it in any kind of um, determined, principled way, public way, until sort of late 70s, early 80s. There's a famous book written about this fact, about how long it took for us to come to terms with the memory of the Holocaust. So in this kind of interregnum, when we're not talking not, about- Not that, here, just so I understand, not here that it wasn't known that there was mass killing of Jews, but the idea that it was 
constructed as a singular, Phenomenal. like totalizing yeah. event. That like you the narrative of it was not built. So, you know, there's an extraordinary book written by a historian, at, I forget where, in the 70s on this, or 80s, where she talks about how an entire generation of Jewish Americans, for example, grew up in homes where the Holocaust just did not come up, even if their parents were somehow Holocaust survivors. It wasn't taught in schools. It was it was known, but not discussed as a kind of entity. And then all that changes with Shoah, with Schindler's List, with the rise of Holocaust museums. But that's all a phenomenon that happens 40 years after the war's over. And so in this period where it's kind of weird interregnum, there's this sitcom <laughs> done by Jews in which Jewish actors play Nazi soldiers and they make fun of, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a concentration camp, it's a prisoner of war camp, nonetheless. So I just thought this was fascinating. So the guy who conceived Hogan's Heroes is still alive. His name is Al Ruddy. And I went to see Al Ruddy. He's down 90 some odd years. And then he just, we spoke for three hours and I quickly realized that Hogan's Heroes was only one of 19 interesting things about his life. And actually the Holocaust story wasn't the most interesting thing or I couldn't make it work somehow. And then I thought, well, if I talked to Steven Spielberg, I could make it. Then Steven Spielberg wouldn't talk to me. And so I was like, huh, what should I do? But, you know, and then I kind of cast about, and the whole thing that was driving it is, I wanted people to hear the tape of this guy already because he was just, just so hilarious and profane and his memory stories were so incredible. I just needed, I wanted any kind of vessel to tell a story. And so I came up with this sort of absurd little riff on chutzpah versus chutzpah. And, um, and that was the piece. So, but that's a classic example of like, you lead with, I have these stories, I want to tell them. And then you hunt for a reason. Because no, you can't just run the interview with Al Ruddy, right? It didn't work. You need to have people going to say. You, you know how I do these, right? How? You know what's going to, I'm just going to run this interview. <laughs> Not going to do anything with it at all. <laughs> and that's why you're number one in the charts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I'm doing something profoundly different. Yeah. There's an expectation <laughs> in my audience. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to give them a reason why. And I have to satisfy that expectation. But, um, how, th this is the thing I've wondered about your move to revisionist history. So your books have always had an organizing theme with a lot of stories in them. Yeah. But revisionist history, while there will sometimes be a theme for a couple episodes or something, yeah. the need to come up with a new thematic for every episode that tells stories within it, mm -hmm. it just seems like an incredible amount of story churn. And I'm very curious how you find this many stories to churn through, like what that operation is like, how you're vetting them. Mm -hmm. I can imagine how you start with something like the tipping point and then you begin thinking of examples that would yeah. flesh out different parts of it. But for the most part, revisionist history, it's it's a lot more self-contained, which seems to me like it would actually be a lot harder. Oh, Am I wrong about hard. that? Yeah, yeah, it's super hard. Although I don't find it hard to come up with the kind of accompanying moral it's hard to come up with a story. Coming up with 10 original stories every year is super hard. Um, do you do that on your own or do you have like a group of people I, who are- I do that on my own, yeah. How, like what? what is your, are you just wandering through the world with your ears open? I have in my bag a little green uh, notepad in which I scribble down ideas. I've got like eight of them there, I can, you know. Uh, how many of them will pan out? Very few of them, but various places I've written you know, I do, I collect, I see something and I think, uh, 
Like I read, I can't give it away, sadly, but I was reading this memoir of someone who knew Adolf Hitler in the 30s in Berlin, in Munich. In the middle of this memoir, there's a two-paragraph story that is so deeply hilarious and brilliant and kind of weirdly chilling. And so I've been, I ran across, I read it and literally put the book down and just like, was like, holy shit. And then I haven't even, I haven't even finished the book. This is like months ago. Because I was like, I know it's, it's, it's a story that's really fantastic, but it's really small. I can tell you the story, in, I'm not going to, but I could tell you the story in a minute. But now all I've been thinking about since is, is there a way to turn it into an entire episode? And there must be a way. <laughs> I just haven't figured it out yet. But And also, I got to find tape. So I need to, the guy who told the story, I need to scour every available database to find out whether before he died, and I think he dies in his 60s, whether he gave, I just need his voice. It doesn't, you have to talk, How would you find that? Well, I mean, you start hunting, like... Like, uh, you know, there's all these news databases around the world and you have to kind of like systematically call them up, go through them. I mean, we will hunt. You'd be amazed how much audio is out there. Actually, we do um, a Netflix show and I'm just amazed at what we're able to find for it. Yeah. Like it is true that the amount of audio out there is bigger than you would think. Mm -hmm. I would put the odds of me being able to find something with his voice on it at 50%. And if I could find that then I just have to come up with the, I need 40 minutes <laughs> to set up the story. But it's such a great story. And if you tell it right, it would totally work. But that's the kind of thing. You're a hard cases make bad law guy. I've heard you say that before. I am, yeah. Um, how do you feel about Holocaust and World War II storytelling, trying to extract knowledge out of that kind of distilled moment yeah. of terror and evil and mass genocide? Yeah, super. Uh, yeah, it's not a, I mean, I, that's why I would never do something that was, I would be fr frankly intimidated to do something that was squarely about the Holocaust. It's too overwhelming. This story is a little whimsical side story, whimsical to the extent you can be whimsical about Hitler. It's actually, it is weirdly whimsical about Hitler. Um, and it reflects not on Hitler, but on us. That's why it's a great story. But, uh, my preferred stories, to, particularly for the podcast, are small ones. Mm -hmm. um, what I like is teasing out the significance of a otherwise um, seemingly trivial event. That, that, or or at least turning something that seemed really um, unmemorable into something big and kind of meaty. That's interesting because in the book, I almost want to put a pin in this because I want to say something else first. But you almost do the opposite. Yeah. You're taking very big, very controversial stories in the book and almost trying to make them smaller. Yeah, that's true. I think that's true. In, in that sense, the book is a, it's an unusual book for me in, in many ways. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating book to write because I hadn't written a book like that before. And it has a, the kind of range of stories told in the book is quite uh, large. And I think it's a, I think it's probably a more polarizing book than the ones I've written in the past. Let me say one thing on the Holocaust question, and then let, let's talk about the book for a bit. Because um, I think these will actually connect. So I went through a period um, a couple years back of reading a bunch of Holocaust-era 
memoirs. Yeah. And in particular, I was reading memoirs and pieces and books about the era of Hitler's rise. Like Mm -hmm. Eric Larson has a great Mm -hmm. book of this nature. Yeah. Um, I don't don't know if you've ever read or come across a book, uh, They Thought They Were Free. It's a remarkable book about basically just like ordinary supporters of the Nazi party in that era. Mm -hmm. Like what was it like to just be a voter for the National Socialists? Mm -hmm. And I had to stop at a point because... The first thing that I felt was happening was when you look at that, you can just see too many analogies. Like it, it all looks too familiar. And then it flips at a, a at a juncture and you realize the reason it looks too familiar is that nothing psychologically all that unusual was going on. That for most people who were supporting the Nazi party at that time, mm. they just either talked themselves out of what was going on or didn't know or it was all completely banal except for what was happening. Like Mm. people were just Mm. operating in a normal person way. And it was too much to look at frontally for me, right? That you could, that people could just have a normal life amidst this kind of horror was too much for me to stare in the face. And I couldn't tell whether or not there was like too much lesson to draw from that or almost none. It just meant that people are just people Mm. in all kinds of both banal and extreme circumstances. And I I had thought about writing something and I just never did because I can never figure out if what I was seeing there was something really important or something really just unimportant. There's just humans doing human things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess that isn't so much a question as it is a – it's why I brought up the question of finding stories in there because that issue of looking to the most extreme examples of things for the lessons that can inform the rest Mm -hmm. seems both – it's like a particularly compelling storytelling tactic mm-hmm. and also feels to me like it can be quite uh, quite misleading, certainly in terms of how um, close it makes it seem to barbarism at all times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's funny because doing revisionist history has made me think a lot about that. That's why I've, I always prefer to go small. Um, and I feel like the most successful... Um, episodes of revisionist history are very tightly constrained, like um, you know, the one about Elvis singing "Are You Lonesome Tonight?" and why why can't why does he always stumble over the um, the soliloquy in the middle of "Are You Lonesome Tonight?" The, you know, and it's it's all about very very specific examples of parapraxis in action and the way in which our traumas disable our ability to perform. But it's all it's the whole show is structured around three performances of the same song. Casey Bowles, uh, Jack White, and Elvis Presley. Um, really, so it's l- tightly limited. It's not about anything else. It's about, you know, it sheds light on it, but it's a, the kind of focus of the storytelling never leaves Are You Lonesome Tonight? I mean, very, very briefly. Um, that I'm very, very comfortable with and feel I know how to tell a compelling radio story there. And for audio... The smallness aids in the effectiveness of it, right? It's really hard to do sweeping stories on audio, I think, because the medium is so emotional that why would you, when you do these sweeping stories, you're giving up the strongest thing about the medium, which is the ability to touch people in a very kind of personal, emotional, intimate level. But with this book, you know, uh, I guess I do in some cases, yeah, there there's some, like... Um, there are some chapters that go very, very broad and extreme. 
So the book opens with a story and closes with the story of Sandra Bland, mm -hmm. who was arrested for largely, I would say, no reason, um, and committed suicide in jail. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a horrifying story. And I guess the first question, Ed, did the book start with the story of Sandra Bland, or did the book start with a desire to investigate interpersonal contact and misunderstanding and trying to, like, read each other across divides and come to settle on the Sandra Bland mm -hmm. story as the, the like, the, in, like, the primary lens of perspective? Well, I had been rooting around for a couple of years. I had been playing with a couple of ideas. So I had, there's a story in the, the beginning of the book, I tell us that spy story involving Florentino Aspiaga and the legendary CIA operative known as the Mountain Glamour. Um, I had stumbled across that story some time ago. Can you capsule that story? Yeah, so that's the story about a Cuban defector in 1987 who uh, was high up in the Cuban intelligence service and goes to the CIA and uh, basically reveals to them that every single member of the CIA's network of spies in Cuba was a double agent working for Castro. So that we had been fooled, not just once, not just twice, but 48 times. Um, and we had not, and we had fooled the, one of the most legendary of CIA operatives, this man called the mountain climber. And so I tell this sort of dramatic story about how the CIA learns that they're, you know, the most savviest, most sophisticated intelligence agency in the world was like literally, you know, played for a song by Fidel Castro. Um, and then I tell, then followed it up with a second spy story afterwards. But um, I was sort of into those spy stories. I didn't know what to do with them, but I was very interested in this question of how, why are we so easily deceived? And that's when I ran across the work of of uh, Tim Levine at um, University of Alabama. And that provided, I gave a talk at the neuroscience, some neuroscience society in New York in like 2015 or something like that where I like talked about um, Levine's work and Madoff, which is another example of the same thing. How did you, when you say you ran across Levine's work, how, how did you run across Levine's work? Uh, I remember, I found it online. I was, I was reading- Like Google scholaring, like no, why no. are we so easily deceived? I was working through, so the, I have always been fascinated by this, and as have many, many psychologists, there's this fundamental fact which has baffled people for generations, which is why are we so bad at detecting lies? We should be good, you would think. We're uniformly terrible. If I bring 100 people before you and each of them says something, and when some of them are telling the lies and some of them are telling the truth, you will probably be 50, and you're, I ask you to spot the liars, mm -hmm. your accuracy rate will be 52, 53, 54%, slightly better than chance. Uh, that's true of all of us. Vanishingly few exceptions. That's really, really puzzling. Um, and tons of people have taken a run at explaining why this would be so, why we would be terrible at something that seems so fundamental. And I just ran across, Levine has tackled this himself, and I just thought his answer was the best. Um, and he has this whole theory about how uh, we are not, contrary to expectation, evolution has not selected us for our ability to read strangers correctly. It's selected us for our ability to do the opposite to implicitly trust communication um, and that uh, we have 
human, human society is built on a trade-off that the benefits of trusting everyone are so great that we can, we can bear the occasional downside of being deceived. And because deception is relatively rare, it's a good deal. Um, and I just loved, his work is fascinating. It's like, it's like, uh, I don't know, I just, this book is like a hymn. The first half of it is a hymn to, to, uh, Tim Levine. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. I, it's like a, there's a real elegance and beauty to his explanation of this problem. Um, and I was just very, I kind of, in a way that I do, I kind of fell in love with his ideas. And so did his work come before you found the Sandra Bland? Yeah, I was Not reading found, it before that was even national. the Sandra Bland case. Yeah, I was reading this I mean. stuff. And then, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I didn't think I wanted to write a book about deception. That seemed to be not a good book. I needed something. And then Sandra Bland came along and I thought, well, that's a, first I thought, well, that's a chapter in the book. And then very quickly I realized, no, 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 that's everything I want to talk about. That's actually, and I read a book by Frank Zimring at Berkeley called Why Police Kill, which really, 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 really also got me going because he one of the few, one of the first times I've seen a scholar of his magnitude, he's big a criminologist as exists, really take the question of police violence seriously in that way and try and quantify how many people are killed. By the way, it's really hard. He spends the first third of the book trying to figure out what the number is. I mean, it's insane that we don't have, you can't go on a database and see, oh, that's the number. You have to kind of sort it together. Um, What's the number? The second half, second second third of the book is is that high or low relative to other countries? And third answer is why. The answer to that is it's high. Third answer is why. Third third, third part of the book is why. Um, and that sort of made me realize this is super interesting. And oddly, despite the fact we were obsessed with all those cases from uh, Ferguson on down, it's oddly an unaddressed issue. The history of race in LA is the history of Police stops gone awry. That's that's Watts. That's Eula Love. That's Rodney King. I mean, I could literally tell an entire narrative about LA that is all about cops, con- white cops confronting African Americans, right? And every time the city collapses in some kind of of catastrophe, there's one of these incidents at the core. I mean, Watts begins with a cop pulling over an African American kid for on a DWI and. An argument ensues with between the guy's mom and the cop. That's Watts, right? And then Yula, uh, people don't remember Yula Love, but Yula Love was the Ferguson of its day. I mean, it was a huge deal in LA. It's where Maxine Waters comes from. Maxine Waters is a product of Yula Love, right? She was the young unknown assembly person, or maybe she was even on the town, on the city council, who makes her name taking on the establishment over the death of this African-American woman at the hands of police officers. It's like the whole, it's like fascinating to think of, you know, Los Angeles has been profoundly shaped by these, and they're all the same, these instances, they're all the same. They're just versions of the same fundamental problem. So what's the connection, you saw here? Because if you're listening to this conversation, mm. the connection between CIA operative gets fooled, mm. trust is not something, um, or mistrust actually is not something we were evolutionarily selected for. Yeah. And then police stops like racially charged and tragic police stops. Like what, what is the connection you two, saw there? Two connections. One is that fundamentally the CIA problem issue is that we are really, really bad at, and I expand on this in the book, 
at reading strangers. The tools that I use to make sense of people in my intimate circle, who I have long a history with, are not useful with strangers. When I only have two minutes to make sense of you, I generally do a very bad job, and I draw inferences from things that I shouldn't draw inferences from. That, make, that means that high-stakes encounters between strangers are inherently problematic. Well, what is policing? It is high-stakes encounters between strangers, right? Um, secondarily, as we get into the book, I talk about in an attempt to uh, improve policing in this country in the last generation, we have retrained police officers to stop defaulting to truth, to stop being in sort of trust machines. We've instructed them to violate their evolutionary disposition, predisposition to trust people. And that has had, um, that has made the problem of working with strangers even worse. What do you mean by that? We've instructed them to well, violate that programming. So the last third of the book is all about a philosophy of policing that rises up uh, in the 1980s. And it's where, you know, we're, we've gone from a situation in this country where um, the number of discret used to be the case that a police officer was someone who responded to obvious infractions of the law. You're speeding, you ran a red light, those kinds of things. Or, you know, a, a traffic accident or a crime happens and a, the policeman is called to the scene and resolves something that has already happened. That was policing in America through the 1980s. In the 1980s, there is a fundamental shift and police begin to realize for the first time that they can be proactive, that by acting aggressively, they can stop crimes from actually happening. Believe it or not, the police did not think they were capable of doing that up to that point. There's an incredible um, interview in the Harvard Business Review with the chief of police of the NYPD. I think it's in the late 80s. A very, very distinguished police officer who went on to be mayor of some big American city. Uh, and uh, he talks about it. He's like, we can't, he's like, we can't stop crime. Like, that's not what we do, right? You want to stop, here's the whole thing. You want to stop crime, you've got to like build schools and alleviate poverty. That's not our job. Our job is to respond to crimes and resolve them in some way, like arrest the people who are, it was incredible. It's like, you read this today, you're like, what? Like the chief of the largest police force, domestic police force, probably in the world, was essentially saying in a highly respected public forum, I can't do anything about the thing I'm supposed to do something about, right? Don't, like, it's busy. What are you looking at me for? Like, you want to solve crime? Go elsewhere. And that dramatically shifts um, as a result of a number of things. And I talk, I have a whole chapter on one of the key events in that shift is what's called the Kansas City Experiment. And the Kansas City Experiment was conducted in one of the worst neighborhoods in Kansas City, where they decided to flip the switch and put in a group of dedicated police officers to go in and basically stop anyone who looked even remotely suspicious and try and, and hunt for guns, try and get guns out the street. And it's spectacularly successful. And in a kind of, the switch is flipped and all of a sudden all around the United States, law enforcement people are like, oh, you mean we can go out there and proactively and aggressively stop crimes before they happen by identifying bad guys in locking them up or taking away their guns or what have you. And that the whole era that we're in now is the result of that. So now, if you look at the number of police stops that are done in on an, by an average highway patrol officer in, um, in, the, in the United States, they're up like 
I mean, I've forgotten the exact number, but we're talking about two, three, four, five X greater than they used to be. I mean, the era we're in now where there's an astonishing number of what I'll call discretionary stops every day on the road in America, that's new. And that is the context in which Brian Insinia, the police officer in the Sandra Bland case, stops Sandra Bland. She's a discretionary stop. And he, that's what he did for a living. That's what he was trained to do. And the engine of the discretionary stop is to train police officers not to behave as human beings and think the best of the intentions of those around them, but to behave as some kind of mutant form of human. And to it encourages them to construct paranoid fantasies about the world in which they're operating in. And Brian Insinia constructs a paranoid fantasy about Sandra Bland. That is the beginning, that is the opening assumption that drives that deeply problematic encounter. And the reason to tell that story is because it's not a one-off. It's what he did every day as a police officer, and it is what tens of thousands of other police officers do every day because of a very deliberate and explicit shift in law enforcement strategy over the last generation. So one of the um, divides the book gets into, early on you say that there's been, on the one hand, a left narrative about this, which is about race, and a right narrative about it, which is just about individual police and a kind of micro level and like, were they, yeah. did they feel under threat at that exact moment? Yeah. And to, to hold on the left narrative of it for a minute, I think the view that a lot of this is about race is that when you call it a paranoid fantasy, when you talk about the mistrust, that that is where at least some of it is coming from, that it's much easier to mistrust, Absolutely. to misread across oh, yes. race and particularly across um, stereotypes of African-Americans. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Yeah. I mean, I think race is at the center of the Sandra Bland case. If she's white, she doesn't get stopped, mm -hmm. right? She gets stopped because she has out-of-state plates, because she's a young black woman, because she's driving a Hyundai. Like that, change any one of those facts, her odds of being stopped. A Hyundai? Yeah, she's driving a Mercedes. She doesn't get stopped. Not fair. Right? So, yeah, I don't mean to, it's not that race is irrelevant. My problem is- Well, I'm not actually saying that you're yeah. saying it's irrelevant. I'm more actually asking the the empirical question there that- Across races, does this kind of mismatch, does this kind of translation problem that you're addressing, does it get worse, right? Does it, it does. aid in the construction of paranoid fantasy? Certainly, it seems to aid in the perception of threat. Yeah, I think it does. So, uh, Insinia, in his deposition, uh, in the investigation, explains his behavior by saying that he thought that Sandra Bland was behaving in a threatening manner. He thought that she was going to pull a gun on him or something like that. I think that is very much about, that is a, first of all, he's, you know, he was, that's not, it was nonsense. There's nothing going to be further than the truth. But that is a, that is a very common manifestation of a, of a, uh, a fundamentally um, racist impulse, right? That's one of the ways racism is manifested is to turn the harmless into the threatening. Um, uh, and he very much does that. That being said, he there's an incredible moment in the deposition um, where he's asked, what do you say to those who say you stopped her because she was black? And he says something to the effect of, we stop everybody. And if you look at his record as a police officer, I mean, the man made so many discretionary stops. It's kind of true. Like, he did stop everybody. It's astonishing. We have a record of... Every single police stop he made in his career as an officer. And if you put that alongside the stops of an officer 25 years ago, there's just no comparison. I mean, 
He is like, I mean, I think I've forgotten the exact number, but in the hour before he stops Sandra Bland, he stops like three other people, all for the same bullshit reasons. Like, light above your license plate is out. Um, you know, these kind of like, no one's speeding, no one's running red lights, no one is like drunk. It's all this ticky-tacky bullshit, but that's what he was trained to do. You stop them on the ticky-tacky bullshit because you're looking for um, something else. You think or that as in Ferguson, be. it's become a revenue strategy. Or as in Ferguson, it's becoming exactly a revenue strategy. Yeah, and I suspect that's actually a much bigger, that plays a much bigger role in a lot of this than is, is usually recognized. This seems to me like a pretty broad-based indictment of how we police. There's often, when you get into these kinds of conversations, a sort of a throwback narrative of we used to have the cop on the beat and he was he or she was more involved in the community and talking to people and not having these kinds of uh kinds of in not all the interactions were hostile by nature right more of the interactions were like checking in with the neighborhood laundromat like how are things going today teddy um is that part of your conclusion in this that we've developed a form of policing that is leading to increased paranoia and hostility and defensiveness among people who carry firearms. And like, that's probably a bad way to structure that relationship, both for them and for the communities that mm -hmm. they serve. Yeah. So there's a bunch of things here that are, I think, worthy to note. One is that in Sinia's deposition, he talks about how he was scared of Sandra Bland. And there are many people who say, oh, he's just saying that to justify what some really bad policing. I think that's false. That one of the things that I've observed from interviewing police officers and reading in this sort of general literature is they are understandably terrified in this, in these cases because they are living with the consequences of a society that has a ton of guns. So if you're in Canada or Germany in this exact same situation, you're not scared. Why? Because the odds that the person behind the wheel has a gun are vanishingly small. In fact, there was a famous case in Canada of a guy who runs it's like two years ago or in downtown Toronto where the guy drives his car up on the sidewalk and runs down all these people and the cop gets out of his car and the cop has a gun on him and the guy is like fumbling in his pockets and the cop doesn't shoot him. In America, he would shot him. He doesn't in Canada because in Canada, if you're a cop, you're not living under this, there's just so, so few handguns. You don't have a presumption that the bad guy's got a gun. In Texas, law enforcement officers live under the actually kind of real fear that there are so many guns out there that chances are they may run into them on the beat, right? So this is yet another way in which this country's inability to deal with its gun problem has unintended consequences. One of the unintended consequences is that police behave very differently in a country awash in guns than they do in a country without handguns, right? So that's point number one about, about the um, broader context. And the second point I was make is that Replay the encounter between Sandra Bland and Brian Insinia, where she's not an outsider. So weirdly, what do you mean by outsider? Her, she's from Prairie View, Texas. She's so they're the same age. They're both twenty-eight, I believe. So if she had been from Prairie View and he'd been from Prairie View, they would have gone to high school together. They probably would have known each other, right? Now all of a sudden, if they know each other, there's almost, I think, no chance the encounter unfolds the way it does. Because he says, when he stops her and rolls down the window, he's like, oh, it's Sandy Bland, right? And they don't have to like each other, but all of a sudden they have another, a way of relating to each other that is outside of the prism of powerful cop with a gun, you know, helpless outsider in the car. 
Um, and the thing about familiarity and community is it gives you multiple points of of connection with someone. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I can remember being pulled over by the police chief in our town, and he was someone I, my family had known for 15 years. I knew his kids, went to school with him. Uh, his family went to the same church as us. He lived down the street, right? I had five, five ways to relate to him. And so I didn't even relate to him as a police officer. I related to him as a guy who would call my mom if I didn't behave, right? Whole different encounter in under those circumstances. So in a certain sense, in situations where we are all strangers and you don't have those additional forms of, of um, identification, you, these, prob these, these situations become inherently problematic. And that's why you don't need an overarching rethinking of police strategy if it's all small town cops, right? I mean, small town cops have other problems, but, but you do when you have the cop and he has only one way to relate to the woman in the car and vice versa. And that is in their role as, as civilian pulled over for a bullshit reason and man with a gun. But there's a section of the book, and I thought this was both interesting and complicated for for the for that kind of overarching story where you argue that actually knowing people better does not often help us read them better superficially better sure but if it is fair that like you knew that police officer um much more deeply mm. but if um Sandra Bland and the officer who arrested her had had kind of some superficial contact they lived in the same town she was three years under him in high school. I recognize they were the same age yeah. in, in reality, but most people will not yeah. actually know each other in high school. That I was surprised by how little that seemed to do. Yeah. And not only was I surprised by how little that seemed to do, but to actually take it maybe out of this specific case, I actually thought that that section was more of a problem for journalists than mm -hmm. um, we like to give credit for. Oh, I think like when you're profiling someone. Oh, you can't. The profile is Morally bankrupt, intellectually bankrupt. <laughs> yes, I, mean, I kind of agree with that. I mean, but Jenna Malcolm. And I been, say that as somebody who loves, who like assigns and personally does profiles. But yeah. the idea that we can know people by, I always think that we way underrate reading people's books and reading their public speeches. We seem to think that the, like the impression we will get of them, like having lunch is more authentic than the mm -hmm. impression they're trying to put out to the world. Yeah. But, but yes, to that point that, a lot of how we know people is relatively superficial. And we expect that gives us a very big bump over not knowing them at all. And that part of the book suggests maybe not. Yeah, so I, the the issue there is in relatively brief and casual encounters, face-to-face -face encounters, what is the value of the marginal information that's gathered? And the answer is it is somewhere between small and of negative value, or somewhere between zero and negative. It is not through its additive. Now. After a certain point, it does become additive. I mean, if I knew you, if I saw you every day for a year, then the, the information I've gathered over that year is very useful. It's really a question of if I sat down with you for one hour, would I be able to make meaningful inferences about who you are on the basis of that? And the answer is, I would say is absolutely not. In fact, if I'm trying to understand how Ezra thinks, I would be better off foregoing the one hour interview and just spending that hour reading, that extra time reading things that you have written or said. And how much of this is that um, in the one-hour interview, and like one of the big examples used in that area in, in that area is Hitler and Chamberlain, right? Yeah. So that's even a better example of what I'm talking about than the one-hour interview. But that 
there is a if we sat down for a one hour interview and you're profiling me, I would be performing for you. Yes. Right. I would never let my guard down. Yeah. Right. I would have like a version of myself I wanted you to see. Mm-hmm. And obviously Hitler had a version of himself he wanted Chamberlain to see. Um, mm-hmm. to go to our discussion actually about Nazi and World War II analogies yeah. and stories. Uh how much is that like how much is the is it that superficial contact isn't useful or that the kinds of superficial contact we're measuring or just in superficial contact we are performing and it takes time to drop that? I think it's versions of all those things. So there is the performance problem. So I'm altering my presentation. But there is also the noisy data, irrelevant and a noisy data problem, which is that, so I'm in a face-to-face encounter with you and you, I'm gathering all kinds of information about you that is utterly irrelevant but I can't, I don't appropriately discount it. So, you know, what I don't, what if I don't, what if, what if I think your shoes are? You know, it's so funny. You're, you're looking down at my shoes. I did this interview with Michael Lewis a couple months ago and we had a, it was a great interview, but I was asking him to sort of read me like he would a profile um, uh, character. And he immediately fastened in on my socks, um, which mm-hmm. at that point were like gray socks with avocados on them. He's like, well, you're wearing these loud socks. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I just had not done laundry for a while. Because yeah. my yeah. home life is nuts, and um, but like he he couldn't tell if there was a difference between I was trying to make a statement yeah. versus I have not done laundry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you can't. I mean, and the profilist always assumes you're making a statement. Yeah, as opposed to discounting. Um, but I I don't you know there there's the potential for uh, for screwing it up. It's really about in, inappropriate weights given to various kinds of data. Now, this is the this is the observation that all those, you know, people like Tetlock and the people who study forecasting, they're always coming back to the fact that we don't, we don't, we we, we are. It's really hard for human beings to assign appropriate weights to data. Some stuff is worth ten x more than other stuff, but when we rank all the variables, we tend to assume they're all equal, right? Um, or some version of that problem. Um, and we don't. When when you meet someone, you're just you're gathering stuff that is of vanishingly small importance, and yet it's impossible to put it in its proper perspective. If you are attractive, and articulate, and charming, it may be all those things may be in, incredibly irrelevant to what I'm trying to get from the encounter. But I cannot put them out of my head. So under those circumstances, don't meet them. <laughs> you know, I um, someone you're making me think of. I profiled John Edwards when he was running for president in mm-hmm. 2008. And I had been, um, previous to that, uh, invited over to John and Elizabeth Edwards' house for dinner because Elizabeth Edwards, who's a wonderful woman in my experience, uh, had read my blog. Mm-hmm. And so I had seen them together. And I come from a divorced family. All of my friends were divorced families. And they just seemed like the most loving together couple like she her hair was growing back from cancer treatments and he was so doting and sweet and in their book they talk about how they raise their children and among the things i just thought about john edwards and and elizabeth edwards is such a charismatic like powerful figure um was that like well at the very like he has this incredibly grounding family life right with this partner who's really his equal and in some ways i found much more compelling than i found him and and then, if, and so then, when the um, story began to come out that he had a love child, 
I mean, this was a crazy level of deception that he ended up undergoing. But I heard from the campaign, no, it's his body man, you know, who, you know, is the father of the child. It's like, well, okay, like that. And then when it all really did come out, it's like, my God. I mean, not, I didn't really cover necessarily that part of it. So it's not like I made some huge journalistic error here. But just in terms of reading that family, yeah, I was either wrong or just the multitudes people can hold are so big that it wouldn't. it's not even clear what it would mean to be right. It's just I've always... I've kind of always held that one. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can really get that wrong. I was going to say, Jenna Malcolm has a piece in the current New Yorker. I think it's called The Perils of Biography. It's all about the Susan Sontag biography. And she, you know, she previously had written about the biographer's dilemma with his or her subject. And in this case, though, she's interested in the dilemma of how, as a biographer, you, when you go and you you interview all the people who knew the subject, how you insufficiently take into consideration their agendas. Mm-hmm. And it's even more interesting. I mean, at a certain point, you're like, you know what? She's right. We should just give up on biographies, which is also hilarious because no one has written more brilliant biographies than Janet Malcolm, right? Like, uh, But although, although the thing about her biographies is, is they are the one thing I will say. She does take her own lessons to heart, and they're incredibly narrow. So she's interested in making very, very specific points about the people that she's, I just read her, um, and actually when I was writing this book, because I had the thing about Sylvia Plath, I read her book on, um, I've forgotten what it's called, about on Sylvia Plath. And it's, I mean, it's a work of complete and utter genius. But it's like, it does not resolve broader questions about, she's, she realizes she can't do that. She's interested in, in making, in giving you a little tiny insight into the relationship between Ted Hughes, particularly Ted Hughes's estate, and Sylvia Plath. I want to go back for a second to the misweighting of information, because one of the stories you tell in the book that I thought was really compelling was the story of Amanda Knox, mm-hmm. because I've always just been utterly fascinated by that case and what happened there. So can you kind of give the, the sort of high-level version of, of the yeah. Amanda Knox case and sort of what your ultimate conclusion on it was? So Levine, the, the researcher who, whose work I use a lot in this book, has this idea of He's trying to explain, first he tries to explain why we're bad at detecting lies. And then he goes a step further and he says, there's a further wrinkle in this, and that is, there are some people who we all get right and some people who we all get wrong. In other words, it's not random, we're not randomly wrong when it comes to detecting dissection. There are the very, very broad, consistent patterns. And there are, so literally, if you have 100 people, all of whom are either lying or telling the truth, we will, there are about, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but let's say for the sake of argument, there are 50 of those people who we all know with 100% certainty if they are lying or telling the truth. He, those are people he calls matched. They are people whose internal emotional states are perfectly represented in their facial expressions and emotions. So in those cases, the liars are stammering and blushing and looking away, and the truth tellers are looking you right in the eye and radiating sincerity and honesty and modesty. The problem comes with unmatched people, and unmatched people are the opposite. They are people who manifest the symptoms of a liar, but they're not lying, or who seem, or like Bernie Madoff, they seem 100% high integrity, honest, and they're they're like sociopathic Ponzi schemers. And we all get unmatched people wrong. Even experts like FBI agents, and he did tests with people who ought to be good at this. And FBI agents are better than us only at matched people. They get them 
absolutely perfect. But on unmatched people, they're as bad, if not worse, than the rest of us. I mean, so the unmatched people, and they're a fairly significant percentage of the population, present huge problems for individual kind of decoding. And Amanda Knox is classically unmatched. I mean... So the Amanda Knox story. The Amanda Knox story is, a, is she is the, if you'll remember, the American teenager who has, does a Euro abroad in Italy. And within weeks of her, her arrival in Perugia, her roommate is brutally murdered. And she quickly falls under suspicion and is convicted and wrongfully convicted and spends four years in Italian prison until she's freed. And the question is, why did people think that a super you know, ordinary middle-class girl from Seattle would have been complicit in a heinous, you know, uh, murder. And the answer is that so she's, mis she's, she's mismatched. She's someone who, she did not represent her grief and distress in a way that those around her expected grief and distress to be manifested. And because of that, they concluded she must be lying and hiding a terrible truth that she had, you know, bludgeoned her, roommate to death. Um, and I would argue that, by the way, Sandra Bland was a little bit mi mismatched as well, that um, she was manifesting her distress in a way that the police officer thought was uh, threatening behavior. And distress and malice, two very, very, very different states. And he looked at her being jittery and nervous and trying desperately to calm herself down. And, and he read it as, she's got a gun. It's going to hurt me. Had she been weeping silently, he would have behaved very differently. But that's not, she's, you know, no fault of her own. She's just not someone who manifested her distress in that way. So one of the big, the big picture points of the book, and you were saying earlier that you felt this one was like a more polarizing book, and I think it's for this, that is that we should be much more forgiving of people yeah. who get fooled, mm -hmm. who come into contact or are the boss of, or are nearby to, mm -hmm. some kind of liar, sociopath, trickster, deceiver, and don't see it yeah. because they're just normal people who trust that um, somebody is not fooling them or us. Mm -hmm. And there's this deep desire for justice in the aftermath of heinous crimes. I mean, you talk about the Paterno case a bit in the book. Um, and that seems to be a place where I think in everyday life, people are relatively open to this, right? Oh, you couldn't possibly have known he was cheating on you, mm. right? You couldn't possibly have known that he was mm. embezzling or that she was. But when it comes to positions of authority, somehow I think implicitly we expect that one thing that a position of authority has is responsibility for getting the people around them and particularly under them right. And we don't seem to me to be in a very forgiving time in this country. I mean, mm. It's not a forgiving mood. So I'm curious how you think about that big meta point that like kind of pushed for recognizing that there's a reason maybe we get some of these things wrong. And if that doesn't excuse it, that should help us contextualize it. Yeah. Agreed. The book is, that is really where I'm headed, that I think we need to be more forgiving. And the notion that our leaders are ought to be an acceptance an, an exception to this, that they have a responsibility to kind of see into the hearts of of those under their jurisdiction, um, I find nonsensical. In fact, I would say the opposite, that it is even more important for our leaders to be trusting. And, because what we really want, like with Graham Spanier, he was the president of Penn State, who was at the time when Jerry Sandusky was arrested and convicted of pedophilia. 
the president of the University of Penn State was, was a man named Graham Spanier. And after the prosecutors put Sandusky behind bars, they went after Spanier and they forced his resignation. And then he spent the last God knows how many years, five, six years fighting, basically trying to stay out of jail. Um, and I find my chapter is all about, I don't understand why we went after Spanier. Spanier was, I've met him on several occasions. Even before, I met him before the, the Sandusky case. The man was probably the best president Penn State ever had. And he is good precisely because he is the kind of person who can create, who created a real intellectual community out of what was once a fairly ordinary state university. He really transformed Penn State. He was a brilliant leader, and he was a brilliant leader precisely because he believed in people, and he trusted them, and he encouraged them, and he nurtured them. And he, people loved Graham Spanier, but people could not accept the fact that the very thing that made him really, really good at his job uh, made him susceptible to a sociopath, right? And you can't have it both ways. You you could have a super wary, defensive, paranoid president if you want, who would have spotted Sandusky a mile away, but he would have been the worst president you'd ever had, right? And I don't. People want to have the the argument against Spanier is essentially at the end an argument that says why couldn't he have been a perfect human being? who is capable of doing these two things simultaneously. And I'm sorry, that person doesn't exist, right? At a certain point, you have to own up to the fact that human beings are imperfect. And sometimes the very thing that um, makes us bad at detecting deception is the thing that makes us good at everything else. And if you want the good, you gotta, you know, Madoff is the price that you pay for having a highly functional financial system. That's a paradox people can't accept, but it's the truth. Wait, unpack that for a minute. So what is it that makes the American financial system work in a way that other financial systems do not work? That is because it is a uh, system that rides on trust. We have a number of institutions which people explicitly believe in. We quite happily wire money to, we wire you know, our life savings to off into the ether, ether under the full expectation they're gonna go where we want them to go and be invested the way we want them to be invested. The whole thing is this miracle, really, it's a miracle based on um, on the overwhelming belief that our institutions work the way they are and the majority of people involved in the system are honest. And by the way, they are, majority of them are honest. It so happens that there was one guy in the last uh, generation who persistently and egregiously violated that norm. His name is Bernie Madoff. Now, uh, the worst outcome of the Bernie Madoff scandal would be to put in place a whole series of of, of, of oversight method, methods and regulations that undermined the essential um, trusting nature of the institution um, in the hopes that you can prevent another one. Because you don't just, just like throwing the baby out with the bad bathwater. Like just accept the fact that the price of a highly functional financial system is an occasional Madoff and move on. Madoff did not bring down the system. We all survived. Many of the people who invested with him got their money back. And also, really, really simple common sense things could have prevented, like, don't give you all your money to one person. Seems like a good principle. Just remember that from now on. <laughs> don't give your money to someone who can't describe what they're doing. Good principle. That doesn't require me to be uh, paranoid. And it's just good principle. Like, if if someone is doing something and they can't explain what they're doing, don't give them your money. That That's just a bedrock kind of so there's there's the 
the tendency to overreact. Very often, the best response to any kind of crisis is nothing. So, you know, I did this once at the New Yorker Festival. I did a talk on this kind of general theme, at the end of which I asked the audience to, to say, do you think that if after 9-11 we had done nothing, we had simply got up the next day and said, that was a very sad and tragic event, we're just going to go on with our lives, we would be better off. Every hand in the audience went up. In retrospect, we all realized that virtually everything we did in response to 9-11 was a stupid overreaction, right? Difficult cases make bad law. Like, whatever. It happened. The, the, so in, in response to that, we went and waged an extraordinarily expensive and incredibly stupid war in Iraq, which cost tens of thousands of innocent lives. More. More. Why? And we spent trillions of dollars in correcting this, this massive bureaucracy, which I, I, I continue to see no evidence that it's made us safer. Why? Like, why not just take $2 trillion and, like, help poor people in America? Like, I mean, it's just like the whole thing is just utter madness. And it's just because it is impossible for a politician to stand up and say, to shrug and say. So I want to go to the financial example for a minute because yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think about this as you were saying it. We have a very high trust system. And I think that for, for people who aren't familiar with this argument, you have a lot of systems where because you can't trust people you don't know, financial systems, credit systems, um, business deals, they run on kin, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're trusting within networks that you can have some accountability over. And that mm -hmm. often doesn't work, but at least it's a little closer and you can figure out how to do it. And on the other hand, just while you were talking, um, I think a reasonable read of the financial crisis is that we had too much trust that um, – and this maybe goes to some of your mismatch discussion mm -hmm. from earlier and the, re the ways in which we're bad at weighting information. But a lot of people who had the social signifiers of people you should trust, their suits were very expensive and their hair was very gray, um, were running around saying things were safe and there were AAA ratings on everything and it all like, went to hell. And part of the problem was that at every level, people were trusting things they didn't understand. And so there's a funny way in which systems based on trust are much more efficient and also at a certain point, if it goes wrong, it can really all go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Systems that don't have much trust remain smaller. They remain localized. To your point about biographies, you do a smaller biography, right? Mm -hmm. You don't say too much. Mm -hmm. And a danger of systems where you're really trying to optimize for trust and telling people to trust is that Bernie Madoff, I agree, right? Like, it is bad, but, you know, world goes on. But it doesn't seem to me that we have a system we can trust, but we, at the same time, don't have a good alternative. Like at some point at that level, it's all trust. And I think this is coming in a bunch of other places. I mean, AI and algorithms, we don't know how they work. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know why they make the decisions they do. At some point, we're just trusting computer scientists who made some good calls here. Yeah. And the amount of trust well, you need to learning, operate. You literally. You literally have you no literally idea. You have no idea. And so I, on the one hand, you have this great line, and I, it's something I've been thinking about since I read it, that almost everything that is good in our society comes from our ability to trust, to default to trust. And on the other hand, a ton of what ends up making society fragile is that we have to trust in so many things that we can't ourselves verify, that we're just assuming somebody somewhere is verifying it. But that creates at the center of it like a hollowness that if it comes down, it comes down for everybody all at once. Unlike if you're trusting your cousin, that only goes as far as people who are that guy's cousin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what this does is it clarifies what the role of regulators ought to be, that 
maybe what they should be doing as opposed to hunting for miscreants is simply creating um, transparency and um, and systems that can boost the resiliency of the of something like a financial marketplace. So uh, if you think about it, in the case of Madoff, what you had was a broken reputational system. Many, many people on Wall Street did not believe in Madoff. They had all kinds of doubts about him. They were, you know, Goldman forbade its investing, its investment managers from investing clients' money with Madoff. But there was no way for that information to be aggregated and made public. And in a, you could imagine a regulatory system which would have said, we're not actually going to do you know, stringent individual audits of everyone on Wall Street. What we are going to do is create a mechanism in which um, that kind of rich local knowledge can be shared. Um, and so we, have, we create a kind of feedback loop where those who have good reputations can enhance them um, in an equitable way. Now, I may, I may have described a kind of fantasy that's impossible to enact, but I think there are ways to kind of manage what you're describing, the, this fragility of a, um, of a trust-based system. So uh, I want to, I think trust is actually a good bridge to the other talking to strangers I want to, to chat about with you. So do you know Danielle Allen, the philosopher at Harvard, has a book called Talking to Strangers? Oh, I, I long after we were locked in, I learned Yeah, this. yeah, and I don't mean that. I was yeah. like, how dare you yeah. use that common title? But I happened to read it um, mm-hmm. shortly before I read your book mm-hmm. because I had her on the podcast for mm-hmm. a kind of project I'm doing on democracy. And her book is a really – I had this like fantasy of having both of you do the podcast at the same time. It's you're both just going to come out in the same week because her book is a very interesting um, – kind of companion in in this way that one of the things she's saying is that it is a distinct commentary on America's practices of interpersonal contact and small d democracy that the like the word that follows like talking to strangers in our national imagination is don't that we tell children from the time they're very little that you don't talk to strangers strangers are people you should fear Mm-hmm. That strangers are not a friend you haven't yet met, that strangers are not your countrymen, that strangers are people who are going to take you in a car and off mm-hmm. you go. And that there's something um, very profound and very awry in a country that fears strangers as much as we do. Um, and I'm curious, just having given how much thought you've now given to our relationships with strangers, if that resonates for you. That is interesting. You know, so when they put that in contemporary context, I'm Canadian and Canada has taken a lot of refugees in the last couple of years. And this country proportionally is doing the opposite. And a really good question to answer is why do, why are Canadians so much open to the, more open to the stranger than the United States? Refugees will be the extreme version of what she's talking about, um, right? The um, don't admit the stranger. Um, and I wonder about that. What is it about is it the feeling that Canada is an ongoing project? Is it the weird structure of Canada that it's basically, you know, five very big cities that are absorbing 98% of these refugees? And so, like, my my brother, who's an, an elementary school principal, he's got, like, 30 Syrian refugees in his school, right? I mean, it's crazy to think about that. Like, when he thinks about what his job is, it's really interesting to talk to him. It never for a moment occurs to him that there's something weird about the fact that as a elementary school principal in a public school, his some huge percentage of his time and attention is taken with the integration of two dozen 
or more Syrian refugees. That's what he spends his time doing, right? It's his job, essentially. He talks about these kids who come in, they have like PTSD. He had a girl who was acting out in class and she sat, basically brought her into his office and she sat in, he said, you're going to sit here until you learn that everything is fine and you learn how to behave appropriately. And she sat in his office for like, I forgot, like weeks or something. That's his job, right? It never occurred to him to think that this was somehow an outrage and imposition. It's just like, it isn't even when he talks about it, he's not even talking about it like it's this extraordinary event. It's like, that's what I do, right? That's, in fact, he transferred, he was in a rural school, which was entirely homogeneous. He transferred into the school, an urban school that had a lot of these because he just thought it would be more interesting. And I said, is that unusual? He's like, no, no, I, you know, lots of teachers, we all prefer to work in the interesting schools. Why would you want to teach in a boring school? Like, it was like an incredibly, it was like, it's so different from the narrative that you hear in this country. And I'm, I'm not making him out to be a saint. He's not a saint. It's just like, he just thinks that's what his job is, right? So there's something about that that, that we're not talking about, about human fundamentals here. There's something very powerful powerful that's cultural, but it's more than cultural because cultural suggests something with deep roots. It's about Canada in 2019 is different than America in 2019. And I don't know, it's some, I don't know, maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like not, do you know I mean? Because you can find a point in American history where the exact same attitudes were held by American primary school principals, right? in New York City in and, the 1920s. That's what they and were. And the truth is, if you look at our big cities, right, it looks a little bit more like yeah. how your brother thinks and, and how yeah. Canada thinks. And America has a different political geography for a bunch of yeah. reasons, but although not 100% different, there's plenty yeah. of rural Canada too. But um, but but it, but I always think it's important to note how much the variation is and yeah. how people look at this. The other thing that I was thinking reading the, the two books in close proximity is that your book fundamentally, I think, forces readers to confront this question of orientation, right? Do we want to orient towards trust, knowing that the cost is going to be getting lied to? Mm -hmm. Or do we want to orient towards suspicion, knowing that the cost will be that we can't build the Effective communities community. and yeah. institutions that rely on trust? And, and her book, which is about democracy, is about this question sort of similarly. Democracy requires us to sacrifice things for each other. And basically, actually a little bit to our discussion of generous orthodoxy, that's sort of a place where we have it, that decisions come down and we kind of live with them, you know, and we just hope it turns out better the next time for us. And her argument here is that there is either a way of living within that in a space of suspicion and anger, um, which ultimately is going to become unstable, or you have to cultivate a very different um, version of political friendship, mm -hmm. recognizing that you're going to often feel betrayed. And in both cases, it seems to me that there is, there's like a fundamentally optimistic story being told here, but one that is very difficult to square with the weight that we in the media and we in the political system and we sort of in the stories we tell want to put on negative experience. Mm -hmm. That we are heavily oriented towards telling ourselves and each other the stories of when it doesn't work as opposed to the stories of when it does. Mm -hmm. And so both in the stories that you were talking about um, and in the kind of broader political structure that she's talking about, it seems to me that 
the media actually has a role here about what kinds of stories do we orient towards telling, because that's going to help decide what kinds of stories people tell to each other. Mm. This is a place where I've often found you to be a bit critical of the media. Um, we've talked about it before in, in certain mm. places. I'm, I wanted to hear you reflect on this a bit and like what an alternative model of trying to orient towards trust and not and orient towards recognizing the upside of the trade-offs might look like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a good answer to that because you could even argue that I am fall a prey to a little bit of that in this book. Your stories are about they're all times about when it went bad. Yeah, I tell a lot of stories about times going bad in order to make the point that we shouldn't spend too much time talking about things that go bad. So yes. I'm a, I'm, I am to blame in a certain way. Um, maybe in my defense and in the media's defense, I would say, do stories about things that go bad help to kind of clarify um, uh, our understanding of what good looks like. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, you can't, if you write a book about how things are going really well, it's not going to be a very interesting book. I mean, part of, probably, probably this is just a problem with stories. That's, you know, the, where is the drama if it's all Probably about... Tipping Point had a little bit more of that quality. A lot of things went well in Tipping Point. I suppose. And Outliers was a story about, <laughs> was a story about success. I, I suppose it is, it is kind of, maybe I'm just, I've gotten kind of gloomy at some point. I don't know. It's I don't a have a kind time. of... What's that? It's a gloomy time. It's a gloomy time. I don't have a kind of good, um, uh, I don't have a good answer to that. I'm always struck, the only thing I will say is that I'm always struck by the the book I'm obsessed with. I haven't, I'm, I'm meaning to read it, but I've been reading about it endlessly is, you know, this Washington Post reporter, Chris Ingraham, who moves to um, northwestern Minnesota from- He's read a book on it now? Yeah, he's oh, read cool. a book on it. Yeah. And it's all this kind of argument for- the virtues of small town life, which resonates with me because that's where I grew up. I grew up in essentially the Just Canadian. Real equivalent. quick, for people who don't know this story, um, Chris Ingram, who's at the Post, is at Wonk Blog, which yeah. was my vertical there. Um, he wrote a story, as I remember this, about how like this one town is like the worst town in America for some reason or another, like on some weather, set of metrics, weather, amenities. You know, it's all flat. There's no hills. All kinds of reasons. And then somehow out of that, people in the town convinced him to visit. Yeah. And then the visits convinced him to move there. So he moved to the town that he had named in a national publication, the worst town in America. Yeah. And yeah. I've read him write about this. I didn't know that the book had come and out. And he has a hilarious Twitter. I don't know if you follow his Twitter. Yes. It's the best Twitter. Well, I I follow it to the extent that I follow people on Twitter and try not to read them. Yeah. You you know, your, your Twitter strategy sounds like it's wrong. My Twitter strategy is I only follow like 35 people. So I read all. So I read a hundred percent of Chris Ingraham's Twitter and a hundred percent of Matt Iglesias's you know, Twitter. I try not to read Twitter. Oh, I, I follow everybody and try not to read the platform. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, but anyway, he's very funny, and I just love. There was something, and I just one of the things that's almost it's a cliche, but it's worth underscoring, is the gap between the kind of experience that he's describing in this town and the way that living in America is represented. And I read an interview with him yes, the other day, yesterday, over his book. And the interview brings up the question of race, which is a legitimate question. There are no black people in the little town where he lives. But at the same time, I thought, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of, America, of Americans for whom that's not part of their lived experience. You know, it's like, it doesn't, you know, that's something we, we not everyone in America wrestles with the issue of race on an ongoing basis. Um, and so it's like sometimes when we 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 talk about this issue, we're assuming that it's in the lives of everyone, and it's not actually. There, you know, there are huge swaths of the country that 
are struggling with other issues, but not necessarily that one. And that kind of, the, the notion of, I think we undersell the diversity of experience in America, that you can go to a place like Northwestern Minnesota, and the roster of things that are on people's concern list is just totally different, right? And, um, I, you know, the um, like when I was growing up, no one ever said a single word about the quality of the schools. Never. It never, I mean, one was that everyone went to the public school. We all knew the teachers. They all lived in. The notion that you would criticize the school was like, when we had things we cared about, that was just not it. Like, but that same thing in, you know, Brooklyn, totally different. It's number one, probably, right on the list of things people talk and care about. It's just like that representing the, maybe if we did a better job, I think, as journalists at representing that kind of um, diversity of experiencing concerns, maybe that would help matters a little bit. Well, that's a, to demystify more of my mysterious book, one of the things I write about in the book and track is the nationalization of political concern. So we've had this collapse of state and local media, um, but not just a collapse in state and local media. We've also just had a shift over towards just various forms of nationalized media. So when I grew up in Irvine, California, we got the LA Times. I listened mm. to KCRW, the yeah. LA public radio, which has great music. And, and I was interested in national politics, but because I happened to consume so many more state-oriented news sources, I had an extremely strong California political identity. I was very concerned with things happening in LA. Yeah. And if I were there now, right, if I were growing up now, I'm sure that I don't know if my family subscribes to the LA Times still, um, but I think we, pro we probably wouldn't. Um, even though now it's going through revitalization, it had some very, very bad years. And I'd probably have an online subscription to the New York Times, and I would listen to national podcasts, and yeah. I would, you know, I would have access to all this national news. And so to your point about there are a lot of swaths of the country that don't deal with this or that issue, one of the interesting things is that increasingly, like, people are dealing with – people feel like they are dealing with the same issues even if they're not literally dealing with them. Like, mm -hmm. we have – like, this is not a thing the media has done in the sense of we have changed what we cover – but it is a thing the media industry has done in changing its internal composition, tilting much more towards high-scale supranational news sources. It's a great book by, um, I want to say Daniel Hopkins, but it may be David. There's like 18 political scientists named Daniel David Hopkins called These Increasingly United, The Increasingly United States. And he shows in all these different ways that the ways our state and national identities have switched places. But the one I really love is that for most of, if you look at the sort of, um, if you look at the book text analyses for most of American history, either the phrase, I am Californian, Virginian, Pennsylvanian, whatever, uh, was either outpacing or about tied with I'm American. And just since World War II, like I'm American mm -hmm. races off and then never looks back. And so for so long, we had these state identities that, and he shows us in a bunch of other ways too, were pretty fundamental to us. And the concerns of the individual state, like state platforms had local issues in them, mm -hmm. not national issues, but now state Democratic and Republican platforms are basically just a national platform. Mm -hmm. And like that's, I think, a pretty under-noticed contributor that's to really mega polarization. Do you, do you ever read the Peter Taylor short story about, I think it's called A Summons. Oh, it's a, in the book A Summons from Memphis. No. I think it is the, the title short story. I may be getting this wrong. But it's all about, for someone living in Tennessee, the enormous difference between being from Memphis and being from Nashville. It's kind of great. It's well, exactly what you're talking about. That in that era, he's writing in the, about the 30s, mm -hmm. I think. I think. 
in that era, that was that was the thing. Your mindset was so local that like the thing that impressed upon you was, oh my God, if you're in Memphis, Nashville is like, you know, beyond the pale and vice versa. And now to your point, I'm, you know, now next up was I am a summons from Tennessee and now it would be a summons from Washington, D.C. So I think that's a good place to come to a close. So let me um, ask you a normal ending question is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Well, we mentioned one. Exit Voice uh, Loyalty. Exit Voice and Loyalty by um, Alfred O. Hirschman. Um, we talked about Janet Malcolm. So maybe we should. I should recommend a Janet Malcolm book. Basically, any Janet Malcolm book. They are all uniformly brilliant. Um, I sometimes think that Journalist and the Murderer is the best, but I think any of them in the Freud archives is incredible. Um, and then a third book. Well, this is just one I read recently that I really, really loved. I read a book. I've forgotten the name of the author. It's called... Um, uh, it's about the last days of the Shah of Iran. It's so interesting. God, I'm I'm embarrassed. I can't remember. We will what find it, the author called. and yes. put it in show notes. Okay, good. Yes. Um, but those will be my three. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Malcolm Gladwell for being here. Uh, if you enjoyed this show or enjoy any of the others, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or just text the show to your friend. Uh, that is how we grow, and I'm always grateful if you take a moment and do it. Thank you to Jeremy Dalmas for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Uh, my email, as always, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, and The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>